0: day on the first Monday of the last month of 2020. I'm Cindy Moritz and you're listening to Book Choice. This is the last time you'll hear my voice as the show's presenter, but I'm delighted to hand over the reins to the delightful Paige Nick. Rest assured I will remain a presence with the odd review and will keep listening as always, but for now it's over to Paige.
1: Thank you so much, Cindy. We're looking forward to hearing about what you're reading in the new year. And hello to all our dedicated Book Choice listeners. We've reached the end of this very strange but memorable year. It's the festive season, and we're adamant we will find ways to be joyful after all the challenges of 2020. As mentioned, I'm Paige Nick, and I'm joined in the studio by Maketa. and we look forward to spending the next hour with you talking about books, my favorite subject. This month, Vanessa Levenstein devours the fifth in the series of Robert Galbraith's Cormoran Strike novels titled Troubled Blood. And Philip Todras speaks to photographer Roger Ballen and his longtime artistic director Marguerite Rousseau about Ballen's latest publication, Roger the Rat. Beryl Eisenberger interviews our own Dr. Beverly Roos-Muller, co-author with her late husband, Professor Ampi-Muller, of the biography of N.P. van weyck Lowe, called Fire in His Fingers. While John Hanks sheds light on Life on Our Planet, my witness statement and a vision for the future by the most wonderful David Attenborough. And Leanne Voicey enjoys the South African memoir, A Wilder Life by medical doctor Joan Lawrence, well-suited to holiday reading. Melvin Minar interviews Angela Zender about the two Iziko South African National Gallery publications. The first is called New Insights, Technical Imaging of Paintings in the Iziko South African National Gallery. And the second is Butcher Boys, an iconic sculpture and its conservation. And then, of course, Anthony Fregion talks about the pace and drama of Napoleon's Run, a debut novel by Jonathan Spencer. And then we end the show with Leslie Beek's contribution of two young adult book recommendations as a way to escape the daily dramas of 2020, The Boy and the Poacher's Moon by Pamela Newham and Sea Star Summer by Sally Partridge. I think this stack of books should offer up more than enough to give you some great ideas for your holiday reading. So let's start with Vanessa. You've devoured all of Robert Galbraith's Cormoran Strike novels. And at over 900 pages, let's hear if this fifth in the series, Troubled Blood, delivers for you again.
2: Again and again the same situation for so
3: many years. Tethered to a ringing telephone
4: in a room full of mirrors. Joni Mitchell, Edmund Spencer, tarot cards, horoscopes and demons, both internal and external weave their way through the latest strike novel, Troubled Blood, the fifth in the series by Robert Galbraith, the pseudonym for J.K. Rowlands. I have devoured each strike novel. In much the same way, I waved goodbye to the Muggle world and arrived at platform nine and three quarters to journey to Hogwarts. For those unfamiliar with the strike series, Cormoran Strike is an ex-veteran of Afghanistan. He lost half his leg in a bomb explosion, left the army, and opened a private detective agency. Rugged, hairy, and not conventionally handsome, he nonetheless exudes appeal with his brilliant mind, dark past, and decent morals. It is in Strike's partner, Robin Ellicott, that the author is able to explore the role of women in a patriarchal world. Robin started at the detective agency by accident as a temp and proved herself to be a worthy investigator. Like Strike, she too has to battle traumas from her past, complicated by the pull between what she as a young woman wants and societal norms. Robin seemed to hear her cousin Katie's words again. It's like you're travelling in a different direction to the rest of us. Troubled blood has the bonds of family running through the book's veins strike's aunt is dying of cancer and it is on a trip to cornwall to visit his family that he is approached by a woman who wants to find out what happened to her mother who vanished 40 years ago margot Bamborough was a doctor whose disappearance in 1974 led to the detective on the case having a psychotic breakdown with the general acceptance that a serial killer named creed was responsible strike and robin have to go back four decades to investigate a seemingly impossible case but is it realistic she said looking from robin to strike and i mean this with no offence to you two do you think you'll achieve what the police haven't after all this time realistic said strike no her daughter describes her mother as an obsessive Joni mitchell fan So Robin starts listening to Joni's music as she tries to get under the skin of the woman. As the detectives explore the layers of Margot's life in the 70s, it gives the author an opportunity to reflect on how the feminist landscape has shifted and also stayed stagnant. There are other cases woven into the narrative. Many a red herring swims around, which is why the book is over 900 pages long. And here is a slight problem. As a reader, I didn't care much for the minor plots. I had two concerns. What happened to Margot? And will Strike and Robin eventually kiss? Finally, I was not familiar with Spencer's Fairy Queen, but as there's an epigraph from this epic poem at the beginning of each chapter, some googling revealed this. Robin and Strike are identified as writer and Artigal continuously throughout troubled blood, which is evidence of what must be a future, and we hope a happier future than Breitermart and Artigal had. What is interesting is that the name Artigal means equal or fair, as is strike, and Breitermart Robin is one of the most important knights in the story. So, having loved the book and finished it, now we just have to wait patiently for the next instalment.
1: Philip Todris, as always, intrigued by the photographs conjured by Roger Ballin, in his latest publication, Roger the Rat, speaks with the man himself as well as his longtime artistic director Marguerite Rousseau about just what goes on in his head.
5: Roger the Rat by Roger Ballen published by Thames and Hudson has just come out and it's become a tradition that I should be speaking to the man himself but actually I'm not quite sure who I'm gonna be speaking to today am I speaking to Roger Ballen or am I speaking to Roger the Rat? Who do uh, I have? I'm
6: speaking uh, half rat half human so you're speaking to
5: both. Oh, this is quite difficult for me because I'm going to be speaking to somebody else as well. So I thought it's going to be a two-part conversation. Now I discover it's three. I think we'll have to charge more for this, Roger.
6: <laughs> no, but you better go to rat uh, language course too. So you just have to be careful about that.
5: Okay. Now, you started by saying you can't remember when I put this rat mask on for the first time. Maybe you'd like to explain that a little bit about who you really are in this conversation we're having.
6: Uh, well, as I told you, I'm um, Roger the Rat, and I'm Roger Ballon and maybe something else. So uh, when the rat mask goes on, or on somebody else, I'm Roger the Rat. Uh, but um, Roger the Rat um, has something to do with Roger Ballon. So um, Roger the Rat is Roger Ballon's alter ego, and Roger the Rat is everybody's alter ego because uh, if it's an artwork then uh, people have to should subconsciously identify with the work and remember the work subconsciously at least and so roger the rat becomes everybody else's alter ego
5: well that is really my fascination with your work and you know i'm fascinated and i also kind of wonder why because i identify you as the epitome of the weird and the wonderful and in a sense you say this because you say in the book I am an outsider living on the margin and have no place in human society. Now I'm going to question that because you in fact say you actually do have a role here You're sort of helping us identify with ourselves.
6: Well again we go back to the word because uh, for me art's about uh, metaphor and it's about getting into the uh, it, it, uh, reflecting on the human condition so as much as we might want to think of ourselves as insiders uh on the other hand we're all outsiders we actually um don't know how to uh contend with this thing we call life we're not actually in control of things so we're we're actually um on the periphery and we might want to say in some cases that we're actually uh not who we think we are and we might want to deny who um that fact but in the end um we're not necessarily in, in control of who we are. So we are actually all outsiders in some way or another.
5: And, but before you as the photographer were looking at images of the outsider and sort of identifying with them and taking those photographs. And now I think the images are more images inside yourself. In fact, maybe that's where we need to speak to Marguerite, Marguerite Rousseau, who seems to be your designer of what's going on in your mind, is that the correct way of, of identifying her? How would you describe Marguerite, or should we ask her to t- identify herself?
6: Uh, Marguerite's been working for me for nearly, well, for 13 years. She's my artistic director. She, in a way, is my alter ego. She's been involved in in my work directly and indirectly in every way um, for 13, 14 years. So uh, part of her um, psyche, part of her aesthetic and pervades the work. So Marguerite's played a huge role in the development of the so-called S aesthetic.
5: Marguerite, would you like to comment on that? Uh, do you find that you are interpreting Roger or interpreting Roger by your uh, idea of what it should be or could be? I, Where- I
2: think it's a bit of both. Um, I, I am expert at interpreting um, the Roger Ballon part. But I think there's definitely also, a little bit of me in there by this time, after
5: 13 years. And to what extent are you creating the scene for Roger? And to what extent? Because obviously these are now, I'm going to call them set pieces, rather than finding the picture. So how, yes. do, how do you collaborate in deciding on what it is that you're going to show and how you're going to do it?
2: Well, we we you know we do it all together. I'm with him when he does set he sets it up. I'm there when he I do, I do the lighting. You know we do together when the photo gets created, and then afterwards I do all the digital work. So that, um, it's it's really a combined effort.
5: I'm going to just comment on that because I presume there's a lot of work that's done after. It's not just the negative. So do you want to comment on that because it's taking photography using photography as a medium rather than just photography as the medium
2: that's correct yes but but we don't change anything what you see is what what there was i don't change anything on photoshop i don't put anything in i don't take anything else all i do is enhance the image to get the best out of the image
5: but again it's just the the way you've worked around it and perhaps roger you'd like to just comment on as the outsider finding people and other people which aren't people.
6: Yeah, you know, so um, you're right about that. So for many years I uh, work with real people, and I guess in the last 10, 15 years I'm predominantly working uh, with animals, and the people um, are only bits of people or mannequins or drawings on the wall. And so the complexity of the image, if you are able to integrate these aspects properly into the picture, the complexity. Increases in, in many ways, because when you look at a drawing, you can't say, oh, what race is he, or is he an old man or an old lady? Is he poor or is he rich? None of those, um, value judgments can, can go into the picture. And as well as you look at an animal, you know, you know, intrinsically that you can never get into the animal's mind. So I think by using more abstract elements, less Real human elements. The complexity of the of the picture uh, has in, increased. You just can't interpret the work uh, simply in in terms of social, political, um, ideological uh, methodology. The, the pictures are, are are leave you with a sense of uh, ultimate silence, but still, hopefully, um, enter the mind and, and stay there. I mean, that's the key. The key to the work is. You walk, the pictures stay there, transform who you are, and ultimately uh, become part of
5: you. That's- There's no doubt about yeah. that in my mind. Oh. When, when I look at the work, I'm always intrigued. I'm always delighted to get a new publication from you. All I want to say, Roger, it's been very special speaking to both you and to Marguerite and finding out more about what makes the books work so incredibly well and what makes it so visually exciting. So many thanks, and that's talking to Roger Ballen. And creative director Marguerite Rousseau about Roger the Rat. It's the most wonderful.
7: There'll be much mistletoeing, and hearts will be glowing when loved ones are near. It's the most wonderful time of the year. There'll be parties for hosting, marshmallows with toasting,
3: and
7: candy.
8: His voice sounds like Christmas, doesn't it? That was the voice of Andy Williams on Fine Music Radio, doing one of the most popular carols. It's the ta- It's the most wonderful time of the year. Beautiful tune indeed. Kali the pop star, did her take. Johnny Mathis, Harry Connick Jr. And the country star, Garth Brooks, also did this beautiful tune. So what's our next review page there?
1: Well, next up we've got Beryl Eichenberger, who catches up with our own Beverly Ruess-Muller to unpack the great Afrikaans poet N.P. van Weycklo's biography, which is called Fire in His Fingers. She co-wrote this with his son and her dear late husband, Professor Ampi Muller. So this marks 50 years since Lowe died, so I'm curious to hear more about this book.
9: New and intimate portraits of the greatest Afrikaans poet and intellectual, N.P. Van Veyck Lowe, appear in a seminal book, Fire in His Fingers, by his son-in-law, the late Professor Ampi Muller, and Ampi's wife, Dr. Beverly Roosmuller. As many of you know, Bevan Ampi met in the FMR studio, and Beverly is a valued book choice presenter, a journalist, author, and academic. Passionate about language and the power of words, she and Ampi embarked on the project to commemorate the 50th anniversary of Lo's death in 1970, but also to reveal his great influence and how powerful that influence still is. Sadly, Ampi did not live to see the project fulfilled, but it is a testament to the power of this story that propelled Bev to complete the work. Welcome, Bev. Wonderful to have you in the studio. Thank you so much for coming in. Besides the commemoration, what was the primary objective in writing this book? I think it was Ampi's relationship with Van Veklo.
10: He was his son-in-law, as you've said, and he met him in Amsterdam when he was a doctoral student there. And Van Veklo was the professor in Amsterdam. And there he married his oldest daughter, Ria and who unfortunately died when she was only 32. But Umpi had a very close relationship with him and throughout the life, even after Ria had died. And one day I said to him, you know, if you don't write this down, all of this is going to be lost. And then we started thinking about reaching out to other people who had known him, and then even further to people whose lives he had influenced, because he had a massive influence in the Afrikaans-speaking community. Really, that was how it began.
9: So there was a line that I picked out of the English (laughs) story of his childhood, which thank you very much, because as an Engelser, it's very difficult to read Afrikaans. But it says, his place of birth and that of his language and work are indivisible. And you go very clearly into his background. So let's talk about the real NP from Vaiklo, his personality, his intellect, and the marvellous backstory of his childhood in Sutherland, the line that I always remember that my father saying was a child is the father of the man, but it is so true. And how he came to write in Afrikaans? Well, it's
10: really an interesting question because he was born in Sutherland in 1906 at a stage where Afrikaans was not yet an official language. Mm. That only happened in the 1920s. And he was Educated throughout his life in English. So it wasn't a natural progression yeah, yes. for him to, once he decided to be a writer, to be an Afrikaans writer. But Sutherland was the cauldron of his talent, his genius, I think. And it really shaped everything that came thereafter. When we went to Sutherland to do the research, it was an incredibly powerful place to be, to see this child and to try and figure out how he became, who he became. Just yesterday, I was reading a book by Hilary Mantel Mm -hmm. in which she said, if we want to understand someone, we need to think about their childhood. And that's what I did when we went to Sutherland. And I think the important thing about Sutherland is that although they spoke English at school and they spoke Afrikaans, Netherlands in the church, on the farms, they spoke Afrikaans and it was a democratic Afrikaans. Mm Brown people and white people spoke the same Afrikaans. And it was in that language that they played and they danced and they joked and they sang. And that musicality, that joy of language was what made him decide
9: that he would be an Afrikaans writer. You talk about the brown Afrikaner, and of course, that was something very important in his life. I mean, he was a political dissident and he supported the brown Afrikaner. How did these views affect his life? And I I just want to add there that you paint the picture of his life, his childhood in the Karoo so beautifully. I could see him actually sort of jumping (laughs) and running through the fields and playing and talking. It's very, very moving, I have to say. But let's talk about him being a political dissident.
10: He wasn't a man who was naturally interested in politics. He never wanted to go into it. As a matter of fact, he, he didn't like politics at all. But he was inevitably drawn into it because of what was happening in South Africa. And he identified very strongly with the brown community I should say here that we have got a unique and new piece in the book in which I use the research of his eldest grandchild, Annika Muller, who has done in-depth genealogical research into his background, looking at 500 ancestors, and we list his slave ancestors so he can... (laughs) Actually, we can genuinely claim him As an, you know, also partly Mixed race Afrikaner (laughs) As so many are in this country And I think he would have liked, he didn't know about it But he would have liked, liked to have known about that But it was his sense of He was a very quiet man, but he strongly believed in humanity and dignity. He writes essays about this. Mm -hmm. And he couldn't bear the fact that brown Afrikaners, whom he saw as a natural part of the Afrikaans' community, should have been excluded from the Mm -hmm. community. And, you know, he spoke about this and wrote about it publicly. And he got real stick for it. He got into a lot of trouble for it. In fact, he was publicly castigated by Favot, And he was never offered a place in an Afrikaans university, which is incredible, being the greatest Afrikaans writer ever. However, in 2005, ironically, the ANC government gave him a posthumous state order, the Order of Ikamanga in gold, obviously posthumously.
9: Which I I think is... Absolutely wonderful, but sad that he never lived to see that or to, to accept that. But there were very many others who saw him as a public intellectual and, and took his stance. For example, like the, the lovely Frederick Van Zale Slabbert, whom we've also we had a crush on. Tell me about That's that true. <laughs> I think we all did. Uh, He was such a
10: charismatic man. And I I remember, you know, seeing him from the very first public meeting in Rondebosch, you know, through to I was in Parliament on the day of his resignation speech. Van Veklo did influence many to speak out, mainly to think about things. He wasn't a soapbox orator. He was somebody who asked you to think about Mm -hmm. what you were doing. Mm -hmm. And Van Veklo was a student. When he came back from Amsterdam to Witz, he was a student in his class, and he said he never forgot the
9: importance of doubt. Mm-hmm. That was what van Beek Lowe taught him. So in modern speak, N.P. van Beek would have been called an influencer. I mean, not just modern speak, but that's today. And his role within the world of literature, music, art, ballet, academia, and public life is reflected in those 46 wonderful anecdotal stories that you've included in the book. Bev, it's a seminal book. It's absolutely wonderful. It's available from bookstores. You must pronounce the Afrikaans title. It's Für in Se Fingers, Die Verrekende influt van MP van Wegler. And it is available from bookstores, can be ordered from the publishers at Helga Steyn, helga at hermanas.co.za. Thank you so much. Thank you.
1: Next up, we've got John Hanks, and he's chatting about David Attenborough's A Life on Our Planet, My Witness Statement and A Vision for the Future. He talks about it as a superb example to everyone trying to make environmental issues accessible and interesting.
11: I've always been a great admirer of David Attenborough's skills as a presenter and narrator of the landmark BBC Natural History programmes. This exceptional ability to communicate accurately and with enthusiasm and passion, which he still has incidentally at the age of 94. ...has been extended to the written word in a book just published entitled... ...A Life on Our Planet, My Witness Statement and a Vision for the Future. He writes in a straightforward and accessible style... ...a superb example to everyone trying to make environmental issues accessible and interesting. The narrative is presented in three parts. The first one is entitled My Witness Statement... ...in which David Attenborough selects nine years of his remarkable life starting from 1937 and ending in 2020. For each of these years, he introduces three key statistics, namely the world population, which increased from 2.3 billion in 1937 to 7.8 billion in 2020, carbon in the atmosphere and the remaining wilderness, a staggering decline from 66% to 35% in 83 years involved but more than just highlighting these concerns for each of these nine years he has skilfully and succinctly summarized environmental issues of which all of us should be aware backed up by notes at the back of the book with the sources of the information presented He is acutely aware of the way in which human population growth is transforming the extraordinary celebration of biodiversities which he grew to know and describe so brilliantly in all of his television programmes, encapsulating this with one sentence when he wrote, Our blind assault on the planet is changing the very fundamentals of the living world. Attenborough was born in 1926, and more than anyone else, He's travelled extensively throughout the natural world and has witnessed how much of it has been damaged and destroyed. Here are some examples taken from various places in the book. It's estimated that we now have three trillion fewer trees today than at the start of human civilization, and currently we cut down 15 billion trees each year. Few deep, dark forests are left. We've reduced 30% of fish stocks to critical levels, and almost all the large ocean fish have been removed. Plastic is invading oceanic food chains, and over 90% of seabirds have plastic fragments in their stomachs. There are currently 1.8 trillion plastic fragments drifting in a monstrous garbage patch in the northern Pacific. The loss of invertebrates is a major cause for concern, as many are now pollinators, essential links to numerous food chains. Germany has lost 75% of the mass of its flying insects. Most of the conversion of wild habitats to farmland has occurred recently, increasing from about 1 billion hectares in 1700 to 5 billion hectares today, an area equivalent to North America, South America and Australia combined. Part two of the book, he asked the question, what lies ahead if we don't move away from our assault in our living world? Drawing attention to the fact that the continued loss of biodiversity has impacted on so many essential environmental services, such as soil genesis, stability of water catchments, atmospheric cleansing, loss of pollinators, and decline in food security to mention just some of them more recently we woken up to appreciate that there is an association between the rise of emergent viruses such as covid-19 and the planet's demise an estimated 1.7 million viruses of potential threat to humans could all too easily give rise to another pandemic as we continue to transform natural areas and expose human populations to more of these viruses In Part 3, Attenborough has addressed his vision for the future and bring back some stability to Earth, returning to bring it more being a part of nature from our present state of being apart from nature, and more importantly, moving away from our desire for a perpetual growth in the world economy, with GDP climbing ever upwards. A key part of this is a move to sustainability revolution – in which we devise products and services that produce our impacts on the planet. These include switching to clean energy through a transition from fossil fuels to renewables, rewilding the seas, starting with a network of no-fishing zones throughout coastal waters, and by establishing many more marine protected areas, and by humans taking up less space, particularly by ceasing the expansion of our industrial farmland. I'm sure there were many listeners who will not like the mantra gaining strength, that we will have to change to a diet that is largely plant-based, with much less meat, especially red meat. At the end of Part 3, Attenborough addresses what I believe far too many people overlook, namely that we are fast approaching Earth-carrying capacity for humans. With the 7.8 billion people he mentioned for 220 likely to increase to nearly 11 billion by the end of this century. I was pleased to see he recognised that Africa must address the still rapidly increasing human numbers, by lifting people out of poverty, by raising the standards of education in all countries, and by promoting the empowerment of women, the last point being one of the most significant measures to reduce family size. The severe economic impact of COVID-19 will inevitably slow the ability of all African countries to embrace these options, and what is still missing is the political commitment to address human population growth. David Attenborough is to be congratulated for this production, which I have no hesitation in saying should be mandatory reading for everyone who cares even remotely about the future of the world we are leaving for our children and a copy should be in every school library. In spite of the many examples of the appalling destruction of our natural world, Attenborough remains positive that we can move to a sustainable society and slow the loss of biodiversity. All we require is the will. He concludes with these words. Our future on the planet, the only place as far as we know where life of any kind exists, is at stake. The title of the book, again, written by David Attenborough, published in 2020, is A Life in Our Planet, My Witness Statement and a Vision for the Future. It's published by Witness Books, part of Penguin Random House UK, and it's available for 340 rand.
10: Your creative muse has inspired you to make
9: it happen. At Quicket, we're picking up from there, connecting your happening with a global audience. Quicket is the ticketing and fundraising platform for events, crowdfunding, and campaigns of all shapes and sizes. Whether it's a school or rock concert, a
10: physical or virtual gathering, Quicket is your trusted online space. And it's really easy and quick kit to use. Go to quickit.co.za. Quicket. Experience awesome
9: you pay less at clicks with great savings until 29 December buy any three selected Colgate oral products cheapest one free now from 12.99 each buy Huggies extra care disposable nappies jumbo pack now $19.99 per pack or save 20 percent on movie products now from 65.99 per pack clicks feel good pay less For nearly 40 years, Prince & Prince Diamonds in Cape Town has created unique engagement rings for local and international clients. Prince & Prince specializes in natural diamonds and gems that sparkle happily ever after. Trusted worldwide, their award-winning designers and goldsmiths have decades of diamond expertise, so you know your ring is in the very best of hands. For true value, visit them at 66 Loop Street, Cape Town. Prince and Prince Diamonds, trusted since 1982.
5: Now you can enhance the beauty of your garden by using Mayford seeds with a full range of vegetables, flowers, herbs and lawn grasses. Mayford seed packs are hermetically sealed and date stamped, ensuring a quality product that you can trust. To grow your own vegetables, herbs, flowers, and lawn, explore our seed stand at any leading retailer for sheer inspiration. Mayford Quality Seeds, the leading brand.
11: For 75 years, Schmittauser Electrical and Plumbing, a family-run business, have combined old-fashioned service with innovative technology. From compliance inspections to leaking taps, our ethos is solution-based service that is affordable. Whether it's domestic, commercial, or retail, contact us on 021 4244 588. For the plum choice in plumbers and the best energy in electrical, switch on
8: to Schmidthauser.
10: This is
7: FMR.
3: We
8: Another beautiful classic of a carol, We Wish You a Merry Christmas, sung there by the Four Jacks and Jill. Yes, only on fine music radio. And that's what we wish for you this year. A Merry Christmas to you.
1: And to you. Leanne Voicing next describes A Wilder Life by Joan Lawrence as a light South African memoir by a medical doctor who spent her long career in far-flung places practicing emergency medicine in very trying conditions. So I think that sounds like a pretty
12: intriguing book. A Wilder Life by Joan Lawrence is a colourful memoir written by a proudly South African female medical doctor. If one were looking for the perfect antidote to 2020's Annus Horribilis, then one need look no further. This nicely written book, full of the joys of travel, nail-biting adventure, and gentle humour, makes an ideal holiday read. Dr. Joan gives us a very brief insight into her childhood, touches on her beloved husband who died tragically young, introduces her two daughters who are all grown up now, and then dives straight into the meat of her memoir. The stories, people, illnesses and places she experienced during her many years practicing emergency medicine in very remote and unusual places. A memoir can be a self-indulgent thing, but this one avoids that by being about a person worth learning more about. Lawrence really has chosen a path less traveled, and her strong spirit and enviable energy are palpable in her writing. She doesn't take herself and her important job too seriously, has a warm sense of humour and is always respectful, even when describing her misadventures with unwell nether regions in far-flung nether regions. The author offers historical, political and cultural backstories when necessary, without making it feel like a geography or history textbook, and she comes across as kind and someone we all want to be like when we grow up. My only caveat would be that if you have a queasy stomach, this book might not be for you. A Wilder Life by Joan Lawrence is available in hard copy and as an e-book.
1: Next up, we've got our own Melvin Minar, and he's going to chat now with Angela Zender about the two Iziko Essay National Gallery publications, the first being New Insights, Technical Imaging of Paintings in the Iziko South African National Gallery, and the second one is Butcher Boys, which is about an iconic sculpture and its conservation.
13: I'm talking to Angela Zeder about two fantastic new publications by the Ezeko South African National Gallery. The one is quite a big book, a gorgeous book of gorgeous publications called New Insights Technical Imaging of Paintings in Ezeko South African National Gallery. And the other one, a smaller publication, but a thrill for me, called Butcher Boys An Iconic Sculpture and Its Conservation. Angela Azeda has been the moving force behind these publications and she's one of South Africa's great skilled conservators. Angela, welcome and congratulations on these two wonderful publications. It's been a long time since we've had such a good publication from the Zico museums and I think it's extremely valuable publication. Give us an idea of the importance of conservation of major collections like that of the South African National Gallery.
0: Wonderful. It's, it's quite critical and very special because the Ezeko South African National Gallery collection belongs to all of us. And showing 600 paintings, beautiful paintings from Ezeko South African National Gallery allows everybody to share within our national treasures.
13: I think an important part about that publication that it brings to fore the richness of the collection uh, with these marvellous pictures, and I must compliment you on the details that uh, accompany all the the beautiful photographs of the paintings in that publication. In that sense, it's extremely valuable. Just give us an idea of the technical research, the photography that you explained in the foreword, for example, of uh, Insights.
0: Okay, fantastic. We selected 600 paintings that were photographed in four different conditions by Michael Hall, specialist photographer, and he photographed them in normal light, in raking light, in ultraviolet, and in infrared. And then some of those paintings were also photographed with infrared reflectography. So we could look at the painting, we could look at the textures of the painting, we could examine the surface of the painting, and we could examine the underlying layers of the painting. And through that process, new insights could be shown um, with the painting. So the book shows highlights of what we discovered, as well as sharing with everybody all the paintings that were photographed. And as you said, the, the photograph quality is quite exceptional, as well as the printing, which was done with pride as litho printing, so something special for, for people to enjoy.
13: Yes, I must say it's a gloriously colourful publication. What intrigued me about the research uh, with the uh, photography is that you're delving into the backstories of of an artwork. And as you rightly, it tells you about how you will take it further in, you know, into the future. It, It sort of exposes itself, what it's made from and where it was made. Tell us a bit about that kind of discovery when you look through these different photographs, for example.
0: It really is a true discovery. So one starts off, as you know, with looking at the painting, looking at all the history of the painting. And then through, we photographed it, capturing it in three different resolutions. And then we could examine each painting in greater detail. So it was fun to discover <laughs> maybe a hidden cow or beautiful new underdrawing or Something completely new was to see that Ömer Stern, for example, may have included waxes within her impesto layers, or to see the greater detail that Pioniev used with carbon in his preparatory underdrawing. So wonderful for, for people who love and appreciate these different artists to have new insight into appreciating them more.
13: Yes, I think that's very important. And I think what uh, new insights is what you brought to me with the other publication, The Butcher Boys, which is, as you rightly say, it's an iconic artwork in South Africa. And it comes with a very interesting backstory. And I think it's sort of politically tainted even into the future, as it were. I've always wondered, how are you going to conserve something which is really done in the moment in the the 80s? Tell us a bit about the... uh, problems about conserving something which is never was never intended to be forever
0: yeah exactly I think what such an extraordinary artwork like that that is well the National Gallery are, are custodians to this exceptional work that's in, included in our school syllabus and it's a work that people feel passionately about and they often will request specifically to view that work. So the the conservation and the preservation of that work is very serious. And we always consider its care very closely with the artist as well, which we're very fortunate to be able to have that dialogue with. So now we take loans for example particularly seriously and with the artist's interview which is included in the book which is really quite exceptional that she was able to have that we could see that maybe it's time for travels yeah uh you know it's it's too high a risk because of the um, the possible results with the vibrations of travel
13: yes you tell that story very clearly and i just want to point out to people i think this is an extremely attractive publication and it tells for the first time really this backstory of the butcher boys which as you said is very famous and I would really recommend to art lovers to have a look at these books, these books, both of them, New Insights, available at the South African National Gallery and uh, Clark's Bookshop, as well as The Butcher Boys. And uh, um, Angela, how do people get hold of you if they want to find out more?
0: Oh, fantastic. The, maybe the easiest is my cell phone number, which is 82 463 Or to email me, which is azender, A-Z-E-H-N-D-E-R, at zico, I-Z-I-K-O, dot org, dot Z-A. Or, as you you said, at Clark's Books and also at the the novel Shop, all ways to obtain the books, which is lovely.
13: Thank you very much, Angela, and congratulations with really a marvelous double project that you've done. And um, thank you again.
1: Many thanks, many thanks. All the very best. Thank you. Next up, Anthony Frijon is here to tell us about Jonathan Spencer's debut novel, Napoleon's Run. It's a dramatic marine adventure set in the Cape in 1795. So what can we expect from Marine Lieutenant John Hazard, I wonder?
14: After reading Paper Tiger, written by Lita Desnois and Chris Whitfield, detailing the sad, slow death of a once-proud newspaper, I needed something to distract and entertain me. My good fortune was being sent a review copy of Napoleon's Run by Jonathan Spencer. This is his debut novel, although he has published historical non-fiction works on Napoleon's Egypt under the name of Jonathan Downes. He studied ancient and modern history and lectured at universities, so he's got a pretty good idea of what he's writing about in Napoleon's Run a final note before getting to the story his great-grandfather was a clipper captain who brought tea from china there it's in his dna has all this paid off in a word yes this adventure gets off to a dramatic action-filled start at the cape in seventeen ninety five and the british invasion designed to prevent the french from occupying the cape and threatening the sea route to India. And we meet Marine Lieutenant John Hazard. Tough? Oh yes, he's tough, and what he goes through from the outset right to the end of the book would reduce mere mortals to more than just tears. From this action-filled opening, the pace never slackens. Napoleon and post-revolution France are the backdrop to the book, involving spies, secret codes, and trying to find out precisely what Napoleon's intentions are. Hazard's fiancée, Sarah, is caught up in the intrigue, one of the reasons why Hazard is so strongly motivated to carry out his mission. Remember that England's great concern was a Napoleonic-led invasion. Hazards' challenge is to find out what Napoleon plans to do with his massive 400-ship fleet. The author's knowledge of ships and the sea make for absorbing reading. His added knowledge of history is skillfully blended together with fiction meeting non-fiction. History can hardly be described as dry in the hands of Jonathan Spencer. Does knowing the historical outcome of Napoleon and subsequent politics and wars detract from the enjoyment of the book? Not at all. There's still William Hazard and Sophie to keep us involved. Napoleon's Run is available from Amazon and Canelo Books. I look forward to reading the sequel, or possibly even sequels, when they come out.
8: It's a proudly South African carol, Come Colours Rise, sung there by Grant McLachlan on Fine Music Radio. I hope you enjoyed that one.
1: Speaking of South African content, Leslie Beak returns with two young adult books to bring some relief from the challenges of this year. The Boy and the Poacher's Moon by Pamela Newham and Sea Star Summer, which is by South African author Sally Partridge.
15: What to offer a teenager to read at the end of this year and this time in their lives? Toffelberg have two books for young adults that I would highly recommend as a way to escape the daily dramas of 2020. The Boy and the Poacher's Moon by Pamela Newham is a gripping adventure with a twist, a traditional South African teen book where teenagers solve the poaching crime at great risk to themselves, and the ending is a happy one. Well, apart from the ending for the poachers, that is. Four winners of an environmental competition, The Fantastic Four, believe Lucy, Javolani, and Serena, have won a trip to the wild. One of them will also win a bursary to study conservation. Not present in the successful group is another boy, one with no name, who is not excited to be near the Kruger Park. He has been taken by the poachers on a grueling expedition to kill rhinos. It's exciting stuff. It's the kind of book teenagers used to read before we had angst and genres and issues to contend with a cracking good read, they used to call it. Sea Star Summer by Sally Partridge is a more contemporary story for the same age group, but very different. At 16, Naomi, on holiday with her parents in Jeffrey's Bay, just wants to stay away from people and read in peace. Life is not, however, always what you hope for. Emily Bronte and Virginia Woolf have to stand aside while she grapples with the very real dilemmas of simply being 16 and plunged into the world of surfer dudes and holiday romance. She attracts friendship and love in ways that are different and compelling. Brilliant storytelling and deep compassion for the young people in the story make this an excellent choice for a long summer day on the beach or not. My personal best book of the year is The Skylark's War by Hilary Mackay, an outstanding book about time and history growing up and enduring the unendurable. There is a point when stepping into a different world is worth the effort that young adults need to make in order to comprehend the story out of their own time and place. True excellence in writing is the only way to achieve this, and this writer does that time and time again. The summer before the First World War was celebrated by poets and writers as a glorious English dream. Cornwall, For the young people in this story, was, although not without incident and uncertainty, part of that dream. And then came the war that would be over by Christmas, but lasted for four endless years. This is a book about bravery and loyalty, friendship and love. It's about extraordinary young people who survived. It's also about dreams dreams of golden days that will come again if you believe in them. And they do, in a gloriously happy ending, we the readers can sigh with relief and happiness too that they've made it through to the other side. And the skylarks, high in the air above the terrible battlefields, sing in French for the French soldiers, in English for the English soldiers, and in German for the Germans. And you wonder, what was the point of it all? I reviewed two books from Tafelberg Publishers, both published in 2020, the Boy and the Poacher's Moon by Pamela Newham and Sea Star Summer by Sally Partridge. My personal book of the year was for young people was The Skylark Summer by Hilary Mackay, published by Pan Macmillan in 2018.
1: And that's it for this festive month of December. Thanks so much to Mzukizi Maketa and Mowande for putting the show together so beautifully and to Rick Everett for his selection of music to get us in the holiday spirit. If you missed any of the reviews, our Book Choice podcast will be up on the Fine Music Radio website shortly, so please do keep an eye out for that. And we're going to play out with a message of hope and love with Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, played by Mike Lartz. And from the Book Choice team, wishes for a better year for us all in 2021. Mm